Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about fluxers, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Magic is the bloodstream of the universe. Forget all you know, or think you know. All that you require is your intuition. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1988 fantasy adventure Willow, starring Warwick Davis, Val Kilmer, and Joanne Whaley. Directed by Ron Howard, which was based on a story by George Lucas, this movie is rated PG with a running time of two hours and six minutes. Willow was nominated for two Oscars, Best Effects, Sound Effects Editing, and Best Effects, Visual Effects. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Journey to the far corners of your imagination where dreams and reality live side by side. Enter the world of Willow. The biggest and most spectacular epic adventure to ever explode across the screen. From master storytellers George Lucas, Star Wars, and Ron Howard, Cocoon, comes this rare odyssey of unlikely heroes, wicked villains, and innocent souls caught in a mysterious realm of battle, magic, and camaraderie. It all begins with Willow Afgood, Warwick Davis, who leaves his village to carry a special baby to safety. Aided by a swashbuckling warrior, Val Kilmer, Willow's quest is plagued by danger as the powers of darkness scheme to destroy the child, a child destined to bring everlasting peace and freedom to the land. Supported with a dynamic score by Grammy-winning composer James Horner and the extraordinary special effects of industrial light and magic, Willow is the enchanting, action-packed adventure that will captivate all for years to come. Willow. Willow. Willow, Willow. That's a good one. (laughs) I could still work on it a little bit. Here we go, man. Fantasy adventure, or according to Wikipedia, it's a dark fantasy adventure from 1988. We'll call it a dark fantasy adventure. So how are you doing, Jason? Pretty good. This was uh, fun to get into, and and, and I'm uh, anxious to discuss it with you. I don't believe you quite have the same attachment to this film as I do, so it'll be interesting to see what your view of this film is today. So let's start with our earliest memories. What are our earliest memories of Willow, Jason? Start us off. All right. Forget all you know, or think you know. This was the tagline that read across the teaser poster from the film Willow, which of course I owned. Oh, and I had the lobby poster as well. And I had the Mad Margin mural poster too. And I had the movie magazines and the programs with the fold-out posters. And I had the Willow board game. And I had the action figures. Willow Wefgood, Mad Margin, General Kale, Sorsha, Queen Bebmorta, and I'm pretty sure that I had Eric Thawbear. Maybe a Nakmar lieutenant or warrior, possibly a death dog. And finally... I had the James Horner soundtrack on cassette that I listened to all the time, as in all the time. I can still remember the smell the cassette had when I opened it and took out the liner notes to read them. For some reason, that cassette packaging had a particular smell, and it was a pleasant one, actually. It never faded for as long as I had that cassette. Needless to say, I had a very tactile relationship and a very vivid personal memory of this film. So jumping in the way back machine, I was 14 years old. And of course, at this time, well, well steeped in all things Lucasfilm related and having been a member of Bantha Tracks, 
that good old publication when I was even much younger. I was now a member of the Lucasfilm Fan Club and receiving their quarterly magazine. The first issue I received was actually number two, which was the winter of early 1988. The cover had the image from the Star Tours ride, and inside the magazine, there was an article entitled Willow, a week on the set of Lucasfilm's Epic Adventure by Robert Allen, which was previewing the upcoming film. So there I am as a freshman in high school in between classes reading up on my nerd news. It was a strange time because this was actually a transitional time in my life. I mean, being a young teenager, sitting there reading the magazine and thinking, am I too old for this now? Should I be investing my time in this or should I be focusing on girls or sports or music or studying or anything else at all? Should I be transitioning out of my devotion to this childhood fantasy at this point? So when I look back on that period of time, I couldn't avoid some physical maturation, of course, but my imagination wouldn't allow me to move past the wonders of Lucasfilm's movie making storytelling. So I would continue to devote at least part of myself to it and obviously still do. One example is this, you know, as I said, I had the Willow action figures and I would set them up on my desk in my room and on my desk shelf in different positions and battle scenarios. I wouldn't actually play with them anymore, but I still enjoyed setting them up. So I knew the fantasy was still there. And like I said, tactile and live and available to view at any time. And although I didn't play with them, I thoroughly enjoyed the setup process. It was all about the ideas and the fantasies that the, the action figures represented and specifically those Willow action figures. I was definitely kind of in a transition in my nerd fandom to this dark fantasy as well. I had really been fascinated by the Alien franchise at this point, both the first Alien film and then Aliens in 86 for this kind of darker version of sci-fi. Now comes along what was thought to be kind of a darker version of the fantasy story set inside this medieval backdrop, which lent itself to a lot of romanticizing and daydreaming and listening to the Willow soundtrack for me, which is just what I wanted to do at that age. Obviously, I was highly anticipating this movie. I saw it in theaters. I remember liking it a lot, but not falling in love with it. I mean, I knew enough and had read enough reviews to know that some of the characters and storytelling were a bit derivative of previous fantasy tales and even Lucas's own previous work regarding archetypal heroes and the hero's journey sort of stuff. But it didn't keep me from falling in love with the world itself and certain aspects or scenes within the movie. And man, I have to say again, man, James Horner's score just really helped tremendously with that. So I was definitely a Mad Mardigan guy, not ashamed to say it, and not so much a brownie guy, but I remember loving Val Kilmer's roguish, wisecracking performance and his swordplay in particular, and actually kind of his character arc a bit. I know the film didn't blow me away, but it still creeped in and grabbed hold of my imagination. I love the setting and the feel. It wasn't a game changer, but I wanted to believe in it, so I did. And when I go back to my early memories of the film, it really transports me back to a specific time I can still very much feel with all my senses. It's a little strange, the sensation, but I'm glad that Willow was there at that time in my existence. So that's pretty cool. What are your early memories, Bill Bant? Wow, great stuff there, Jason. Yeah, so I was really interested in seeing this movie because it was based on a story by George Lucas. And it was directed by Ron Howard. And I remember on all your entertainment shows, they were making a big deal about the special effects for this movie, especially the transformation scene, which had never been done before on film. But the problem was every entertainment show that was telling the transformation scene would end up showing the clip of the transformation <laughs> scene. So Shit. it's like your biggest marketing tool and you're just giving it away. And then the reviews came out and they weren't very good. Yeah. So I passed on seeing this in the theater and waited for it to come out on video. 
and after renting it, I must say I was underwhelmed. I couldn't remember any of the characters' names except for Willow and Mad Mardigan, who I thought his name was Mardigan, and everyone was using Mad as like a description. <laughs> That's great. You know, you couldn't forget the name because Willow must have said it 800 times throughout the movie. I think every other line is Mad Mardigan. Yeah. Kind of exhausting. And I remember the brownies. And what makes this funny is because to me at that time, it was Rick Overton and the other guy, because I knew who Rick Overton was. Mm. I had no idea who was playing the other guy. Well, the other guy turns out to be Kevin Pollack, who I first discovered on TV doing stand-up. Yeah. And he did, well, he still does some great impressions. Dudley Moore, William Shatner, and of course, Christopher Walken. Kevin's run came more in the 90s. Yeah. But I'll talk about the Brownies a little bit more in my initial thoughts. Um, I remember the Two-Headed Beast, of course, uh, the transformation scene. That was really about it. This was really just my second viewing of the movie for this podcast. So watching it again, yeah, I definitely have a lot of things to discuss. So that was my earliest memories. You know, I love that we're coming at this from slightly different perspectives, or maybe I should just say attachment and maybe even nostalgia. Uh, I obviously having have had many more viewings of the film. Man, it's great that this was just the second time you'd seen it. So, Like you said, you've watched this a couple of times. For me, it's only the second time watching. But what are our initial thoughts revisiting this for the podcast? Yes, absolutely. What did we think about Willow today? Well, I do like to start with the main players and a little bit about what they're known for and maybe a little bit of their like 80s snapshot. And let's start with our main protagonist, Warwick Davis, who portrays Willow Ufgood. Warwick Davis, most famously known for portraying everyone's number one Ewok, Wicket, in Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. Then he would reprise his role as Wicket in the Ewok Adventure TV movies. Then he appears in this film in 1988, Willow. He would follow that up with the campy horror franchise of the Leprechaun films and would reappear again in three, as three different characters in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Then he portrays Professor Phileas Flitwick in the Harry Potter film franchise. He stars in the series Life's Too Short from 2011 to 2013, in which Val Kilmer actually guest starred on one of the episodes. Then he returns to the Star Wars franchise as various characters throughout The Force Awakens, Rogue One, Last Jedi, Solo, A Star Wars Story, and The Rise of Skywalker, and about to appear once again as Willow on the eight-episode run of the sequel television series on Disney+. Plus. So yeah, a little bit of trivia just going back to, again, everybody's favorite Ewok, <laughs> Wicket. Here's a little bit of background there. Warwick's grand... I, in, I believe his name is actually pronounced Warwick. The, the second W is silent. I had read that somewhere in the research, but I'm going to still call him Warwick for right now. Warwick's grandmother heard a radio announcement calling for people under four feet in height to try out for Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi in 1983. She took him. He was only then two foot 11 to the audition. He was originally cast as a background Ewok, but his role was expanded during filming as he impressed the filmmakers. And when Kenny Baker fell ill... Warwick was chosen to take his place in the key role of the first Ewok met by Princess Leia. Then he's off to the races. And uh, now we know him as not only Wicket, but Willow and Leprechaun. Moving on to another main player, the one and only Val Kilmer, who plays Mad Mardigan. That's his whole name, Mad Mardigan, not Mad Mardigan. Oh, God, that's a great memory, Bill. That cracks me up. And it totally makes sense. Crazy Mardigan. 
Mad Mardigan. Uh, <laughs> Val Kilmer, most famously known for the roles of Chris Knight in Real Genius, Iceman and Top Gun. In between Top Gun and The Doors, that's when he plays Mad Mardigan and Willow. But yes, after Willow in 1988, he goes on to play Jim Morrison in The Doors, Doc Holliday in Tombstone, Batman and Batman Forever, Simon Templer in The Saint. Then continues to work, but stars in films that are either kind of forgettable or under the radar. I'm personally a fan of uh, Red Planet, The Salton Sea, and Kiss Kiss Bang. But he eventually shows up as the nemesis of the now cult classic comedy MacGruber in 2010. He has a really strange turn in the widely panned The Snowman in 2017. And then uh, just last year in 2021, he comes out with his own uh, documentary entitled Val. And finally, he reprises his role as Iceman in Top Gun Maverick this year in 2022, which is incredible. Go and see it if you haven't already. Most people in the universe have, I guess. And uh, he is, has an incredibly moving scene in that film, which yeah, I just highly recommend it. In relation to this film we're covering, somewhat well known that Val Kilmer met Joanne Wally, who portrays uh, Sorsha, the female protagonist in this film, or antagonist, I should say. So they met during filming and would go on to marry. They'd be married from 88 to 96, and they have two children, Mercedes and Jack Kilmer. Jack Kilmer is an actor himself who does much of the narration for the documentary Val. This is one of my favorite little tidbits about Val Kilmer. At the time, back in the day, was the youngest student ever accepted in Juilliard's drama department. His record has been supplanted by Juilliard student Seth Numerick who was admitted at 15 years old in 2002. Moving on. This movie, Willow, is directed by the great Ron Howard, and the story is by George Lucas and executive produced by George Lucas. This was already mentioned by Bill in the beginning, but just uh, some initial thoughts there. These are some heavy hitters that made this movie, and this is why people like myself rushed out to see it in the theater, uh, despite any reviews. But other than that, let's get into the movie. Some initial thoughts. I, you know, I actually enjoyed the opening of this film. It was just a simple setup. It's pretty straightforward. And we have already this uh, with the title cards appearing. We know there's this backstory, or I should say, lore that we are introduced to where in this medieval fantastical land, there is an evil queen that is collecting all of the pregnant women within the land because there are seers that have foretold a baby is to be born that would one day overthrow her and end her reign by destroying her. So the evil Queen Bavmorta at the castle Nokmar is uh, imprisoning all these pregnant women, and a baby is born, and she bears the mark, and she is the chosen one, and so they are going to kill this baby. But the midwife to the mother escapes with the child, runs into the forest being chased by death dogs, but manages to get to a river and then puts the baby on this makeshift raft that's actually this natural part of the grass and puts the baby on the raft and sends the baby down the river. And my first thought, Bill Bent, was good thing there was no rapids on that river. That's kind of dangerous. Luckily, the baby makes its way down to the land of the Nelwins, where Willow and his family reside. And we're off. That was just an initial thought with the setup at the beginning. I just thought that was funny. Good thing there was no rapids. Hey, man, I still find Val Kilmer to be quite charming in this film, although he's very his character is very arrogant. His, his uh, character is humorous, quick-witted. He has great timing, great delivery. I still feel that I love the world that this film provides. I wish it were slightly more defined, but overall, I, the design is good. The location and landscape photography is great. 
absolutely love the, the look of uh, Castle Nakmar and the details of General Kale's helmet with the skull face and the weapons such as Sorsha's serrated sword. There's clearly effort that's put into the lore, as I mentioned, and, and the naming of people. I mean, these names, Willow Ufgood, Migosh, Burglecut, Kale, Bavmorta, Sherlindria, Sorsha, Mad Mardigan, Finn Rizel, Eric Thawbear, Alora Dannon. It's awesome. The setup's pretty solid. Some heartwarming moments within the Ufgood family and good baby acting, baby facial expressions. But I'm finding now, watching this as an adult, that the overall reviews were pretty spot on. The film is fun but it's a bit drawn out and lacking depth. The outline of the characters and the frame of the story are in place, but it's underdeveloped. Things just happen. We don't get to really understand the history of motivations or depth of relationships. We're simply told that certain things need to happen or else, and those things happen. Outside the classic good versus evil tale, there really is only a superficial conflict. For a movie that's just over two hours, here's an initial thought. There isn't like a great deal of action. There's like a couple big action scenes. You know, Many elements in the film are geared towards children, which is okay. The brownies are there for comic relief, and they have their slapstick moments, but they are not for me. I'll just put it there, or leave it there. I still had fun watching this, but it's obvious that Kilmer and the music score are really what make the film slightly above average for me. Uh, we've just seen too many iterations of this fantasy tale too many times with a lot more development. And that's my initial thoughts. How about you, Bill Bant? Okay, so Lord of the Rings, Wizard of Oz, <laughs> Old Testament. Snow White, Highlander, Star Wars. What do all these things have in common? When I watch Willow, all I see is other movies and stories within Willow. And Willow is not the first movie to borrow or reference or pay homage to other films and stories. Problem is, those movies and stories are better. Willow doesn't improve upon or provide a fresh spin on anything. Okay, our hero is a little person who must set out into the world of the unknown in order to save that world a world in which he is considered inferior. Yeah. There's many examples of that in stories and movies, but where is the fresh coat of paint? I was hoping going back because of the new series and looking at this with a fresh set of eyes, I would appreciate the movie, but not really. All I could see was other movies done better. I mentioned the brownies in my earliest memories and this movie is over two hours. Like you mentioned, I'm with you. Get rid of them. No reason for them to be in the movie. Maybe keep them in the scene where they capture the baby because it's the same gag throughout the whole movie. It's, oh my God, they're really, really small and they might get trampled on and they don't. <laughs> as much as you wish they might have been. Exactly. I mean, I like the whole aspect of that in this world, we have beings that are different sizes but when two of them really do nothing in the movie, you could have wrote them out and nothing in the movie changes. Nothing right. in the movie changes. Yeah. They don't bring anything to the table. Too much time in this movie is devoted to unnecessary characters. And that's why I was having a hard time to get through it. Stick with your main story. You have Willow, who's got to get this baby to this castle or to this sorcerer who can help. And let's just follow his journey. That's what I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was too much conflict with him and Matt Marnigan. He said Matt Marnigan's name too many times. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's true. You know, he's trying to be a sorcerer. I wanted to see a little bit more of that because that's really his dream. He wants to become a sorcerer. And how is that all going to tie into him saving this baby, which is going to hopefully end up saving their realm or wherever the place is supposed to be? I'm, I'm not sure. But that's what I want. I wanted more of that. So... 
Mm -hmm. that sense, I think I'm kind of looking forward to the show because hopefully it dives more into that kind of stuff. But even watch it again, I'm still a little bit disappointed. Well stated. I happen to agree with, I think, everything you said, Bill Bant. And that doesn't detract from any of my nostalgic attachment or love for this film because of when I saw it and, you know, the feelings I had about it then. But I can't disagree. I love the fact that you mentioned, yeah, that you're hoping for more development within the series, the upcoming series on Disney+. Plus. I had written that down as well. That is exactly what I'm looking forward to and hoping for because I felt, again, yeah, that there was enough here that timeless story that you've, like you said, we've seen time and time again. And sure, great foundation. I'd just like to know a little more. I'm following this journey of a Nelwyn, a smaller person in this world, try to overcome and to learn to become a sorcerer. And how does he go about it? And what is, are his experiences? And what is his? what are his trials? What are his uh, obstacles? And what is his arc, et cetera. So we don't really get much of that. It just, he, things just kind of happen to him and he manages through. Couldn't agree more about the brownies. They're, they're not necessary. They literally are just there for comic relief. We're just going to take a break from the action right now and go see what the brownies are up to. Oh boy. Kevin Pollock falls in a vat of beer. That's crazy. And now back to Mad Martigan and Willow. How are the brownies pushing the story forward? They're not really. Are they showing off some, at the time, were to be some cool special effects? Is it kind of a cool idea that we have little people versus big people, the Nelwins versus the Daikinis, and then on top of it, oh, we have actually tiny people known as the brownies. Okay, that's kind of cool. There's just all people of all shapes and sizes. Great, that fill out this world. But they just, if they don't serve any purpose, then they're just being cheesy and goofy. Let's uh, cut the fat on this script a little bit, right? In the story and get to the good stuff. Yeah. As I say, you just introduced them the one time after they steal the baby and that their mission, they work for the fairies and they were supposed to bring the baby to whoever the main, I, like I said, I can't remember anybody's freaking name in this movie. And she gives Willow the mission of go find Roselle to restore order. And then we don't need to see the brownies anymore. We're done. Thank you. Yeah, and even how Good the brownies, job, yeah, yeah, managed to like they just randomly steal Alora Dan and the baby from Mad Mardigan. We don't actually see that happen. It's just that Willow and Migosh are thinking they've accomplished their mission by bringing the baby to a Daikini, a big person, handing the baby off. Their mission's over. They're going back to their home, and all of a sudden, a brownie's flying by. And I don't know, was it like a hawk or uh, like some yeah, sort some of kind bird? Of bird carrying the baby going woohoo and they're like oh my god that's our baby what the heck and he's like i stole it from a stupid daikini like how did that happen what is this just a matter of convenience to get willow back into his journey and on his right path it's weird anyway there's some stuff that happened very conveniently in this movie but we can just keep this moving along bill bant if you want okay so moving on to favorite scenes or moments after everything we said, do we have some favorite scenes or moments that we can share with our audience about Willow? I think we do. I, I certainly do. I mean, they're not numerous, but I still have some favorite scenes and or moments. And my first scene, I call Mad Mardigan in the Crow's Cage. It's Val Kilmer's introduction in this film, and he's great. At this point in the film, and uh, you may have uh, deduced as much from what we've said thus far, but 
what has happened is basically this baby who is part of this prophecy, this baby is supposed to grow up to be a princess that will defeat the evil queen Bavmorda. And this baby has landed in the arms of Willow Ufgood. And he is charged with the mission of then bringing this baby to the crossroads of the Daikini, meaning the crossroads of the big people, because Willow himself is one of the Nelwins. He is a little person, and he all he has to do is bring this baby to a Daikini, hand off the baby, because the baby itself is a Daikini and belongs with the Daikini. So that's it, right? Easy enough. Willow and his band of merry men go to the crossroads of the Daikini, and at the crossroads, it's kind of a dire scene. It's a little bit kind of a morose, barren landscape, and you have these trees that are basically lined with these crow's cages hanging off of them. And if you've seen any like medieval films, especially like in the 80s, these crow's cages are literally like these large metal cages that hang from the branches, and you always see skeletons in them as if there was a human being <laughs> imprisoned in this cage and they either died from starvation or from the elements. It's a, just a terrible way to go and it leaves it to your imagination. It's just an awful, awful way to go. So the Nelwins have arrived at these crossroads and we see these cages. One of them has a skeleton in it, of course. And at one point, Willow actually backs up against one of the cages and there happens to be a live Daikini in that cage. And that is Mad Mardigan, who is clearly down on his luck. He's a roguish fellow, a little rough around the edges. Uh, obviously, he's been stuck in a cage for a while, unshaven and a bit dirty. He got there for getting into some sort of trouble. And uh, basically, he grabs Willow and starts demanding for some water. And he somehow, for some reason, lets Willow go. And Willow goes back to his band of merry men with the child. And they are like, well, it's a daikini. He's in a cage, but it's a daikini. Regardless, we can give him the baby and then go back home and we're all good. And of course, Willow is a little bit hesitant and they go back and forth. And he's like, this guy doesn't seem like a person of good repute, more that he is of ill repute. <laughs> This is a fun scene because Val Kilmer portraying Mad Mardigan is doing his best to use his cunning and use his wit to either try to get water or try to convince the Nelwins to give him the baby, thus let him out of the cage. And he's not doing a great job. He instead continues to get frustrated because they won't give him the baby. Of course, they're not going to trust him. So he continues to deride the Nelwins by calling them pecs, which is like this fictional derogatory name that works quite well and gets under their skin. Eventually, Willow threatens him with a magic acorn that will turn him into stone. And this is one of my favorite lines because Mad Mardigan from his cage hanging off the branch of the tree says, Ooh, I'm really scared. No, don't, don't. There's a peck here with an acorn pointed at me. And then after spending the night and waking up in the morning, and at this point, we've only got two Nelwins left. We got uh, Willow and his buddy Migosh. A couple of horses with soldiers on them run by, but they don't stop. And at this point, Mad Morgan is professing that he's the greatest swordsman that ever lived. He asks for more water and he feigns that he's crying. One of my favorite moments, actually, is when he just starts breaking down crying and he's faking it, of course. But it's really funny because he's overdoing it on purpose. And he's just like, oh, I don't know why I try. I guess I'm going to die here. Who cares? And then Willow finally is like, here's some water. And he's like, oh, thanks, friend. And then... All of a sudden, Eric Thawbear shows up. He is on a horse and leading an army from Galadorn, which had been destroyed by evil Bavmorda and her army. 
And we see that Matt Morgan knows Eric from before in the past somehow. Possibly they were fighting side by side at some time. But Eric says to him, I know you'd always end up in a crow's cage. Mad Mardigan, I still serve Galadorna. You serve no one. Sit in your coffin and rot. And then <laughs> Mad Mardigan's retort is, when I get out of here, I'm going to cut your head off and stick it on a pig pole. So I actually like this back and forth. We just get a, a lot of variety coming from Mad Mardigan, a.k.a. Val Kilmer, in this cage. And it's kind of a good introduction to his character. We don't know if we can trust him or not. He just shifts tactics throughout we know he's got a relationship to this Eric Thawbear that's this leader of this, what we believe is the, the good guys, the, the good guy army. Finally, Eric takes off with his army. They're all left alone again. And Willow and Migosh are like, you know what? We really don't have a lot of a choice here. Uh, Mad Mardigan convinces them to let him go. So they break him out of the cage and they hand over the child to this rogue, Mad Mardigan, and they're giving Mad Mardigan her clothing and changing cloths and the milk bladder. And immediately he's like, uh, is there any milk in there? And Willow's like, it's for her. And he's like, I wouldn't steal from a baby. So they let her go with him. Anyway, it's fun. It's charming from Mad Mardigan. It's a great intro for his character. We're not sure who he is or where his loyalties truly lie. He's selfish, but you kind of still like the guy. And you hope that maybe he does have a good heart. And he leaves with the child, and it's a little risky. It's a little scary, too, but it's a fun scene. I, I like Val Kilmer in the scene. For me, I thought that scene was too long. They spent too much time at that one location. I yeah. would have split that up into different scenes. I would have got Mad Mardigan out of the cage a little bit quicker, and then they come across the army as a group, and then maybe they'll split ways, and then the baby gets... I don't know. I just felt like everything in that location was too long. No, I don't disagree with that. It could very well have been edited. Uh, I just like watching Val Kilmer kind of do his thing. No, I hear you, though. Yeah, he is one of the more interesting characters of the movie. All right, so my first favorite scene, we're going to go back a little bit towards the beginning, and it's the uh, village of Nelwyn has a festival, and basically Willow has found this baby that the queen wants because the baby has this mark on it that designates that this is the baby that's going to take over and rule or how, however it's supposed to happen. But this baby is a threat to the queen. And um, luckily the baby has gotten out alive and now Willow has it. And he's not sure what to do with it, but a festival is going on. And what I liked about the scene is we really get to see, it's almost like if we went back and watched Wizard of Oz and got to see how the munchkins lived before Dorothy's house fell. And um, this festival has a very Renaissance feel. You have your musicians playing, you have people dancing around, and then there's kind of a main stage area. And Willow's there and he's performing magic. And he really wants to be a sorcerer. That's his, that's his big thing. He wants to become a sorcerer. And I guess the main event of the festival is the High Aldwin will come out and those who think they should be the sorcerer's apprentice go through a test. And if they pass the test, they'll be the apprentice of the High Aldwin. So that's what Willow wants to do. But in the meantime, he's uh, doing this magic act for the villagers. And he starts off with this one trick where he takes this flaming rod and he sticks it through his arm and is able to pull it out and he amazes everybody. So they're like, oh, they're, they're kind of interested in what he's doing. And then his neck trick, he's going to make a pig disappear. 
And he brings out this little pig and he puts it on a table and he throws the blanket over the pig and he says his magical words and he pulls the blanket away and the pig is gone and everyone's really impressed. But unfortunately, we hear the pig start squealing and it comes out from under the table. Everyone laughs and, and then walks away disappointed. And then, of course, Willow is really disappointed. But at that point, the High Aldwin comes out. He requests the people that want to go through the trial to see if they can be the apprentice. And there's three of them. And Willow's the third. And the wizard asks him a simple question about his hand. What finger does the power of a sorcerer come out of? And the first two people choose. And they choose incorrectly. And then he asks Willow. And Willow looks like he's about to pick something. And then he hesitates. And then you're kind of hoping, okay. He's going he's gonna to make the right choice. He's going to become the apprentice. And this is how our journey is going to start. But unfortunately, he picks wrong. So the High Altwin says, sorry, no apprentice again this year. And once again, Willow is disappointed. But he's not disappointed for too long because all of a sudden there's chaos. There's these um, death dogs, which they look like little mini lions, I guess is the best way to describe them. I thought they were pretty cool. Yes, I agree. And one of them starts running through the village because the queen uses these death dogs to sniff out where the baby is. So they pretty much track the baby to the village. And I think Willow kind of knows that. So, of course, he's trying to round up his kids and wife to protect them. Chaos has just reigned over the village. Everybody's running for their lives. Eventually, um, members of the Newellen army take down the um, death dog. And that's where the scene ends. And then Willow realizes he has to let the village know why this death dog is here. And that he has this baby and he needs to figure out what to do with this baby. This is where our journey begins. Well said, Bill Band. I adore that scene and the entire, that whole sequence is great for a couple of the reasons you mentioned. One, it is reminiscent of a Renaissance fair because it seems like there is just pure warmth and enjoyment occurring throughout the sequence at the festival. It's just fun. It seems like a very tight knit community and they all enjoy each other's company. They all engage in their own abilities and trades and yeah, they seem to have it figured out in this beautiful countryside. And it's just fun to watch it all kind of unfold and to see Willow's family so tight-knit and they have a particular bond. I love his little two kids that he has a young boy and a girl that seem to be quite fond of him and that are very supportive of him and his magic and his pursuit of becoming a sorcerer and the or apprentice to the High Aldwin. Uh, so they're rooting for him and you see their relationship and attachment to one another and that little family union, uh, the relationship between Willow and his wife, Kaya. I bought into that hook, line and sinker uh, and I enjoy the setup of this film. It's a quite a beautiful location with some what seems like some really good, hard you know, working people that are uh, blown off some steam during the festival. Then, yes, of course, the death dog interrupts everything. And I love, yeah, I love the design of the death dog. They, yeah, like a miniature lion with all this scruffy black fur. They're all black. They have these red glowing eyes, these big jaws, and then this rat, like extended rat tail, which I thought was a cool addition. Oh, yeah. Instead of having like a furry tail or a short tail, it's like a long rat tail on a dog-like creature. It's kind of cool. Good choice. Yeah, I was certainly interested living in Nelwyn and, yeah, just your classic festival where everyone in this town village is there. It's just one of those kind of moments. And I thought it was, yeah, a good way to set things up. And then, oh, well, what do you got <laughs> next for favorites? And, and I think or to uh, step on trivia a little bit here too, as well. 
you had mentioned that it was somewhat reminiscent of uh, of Munchkin Land, and I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken, George Lucas way back in the day, like in 1972 or 74, I could be mis- it's one of those years, had this idea, and initially it called it the Munchkins or something like that. Yeah, I think it was the Munchkin. Yeah. Uh, so my next favorite scene, uh, I'm just calling Mad Mardigan romances Sorsha under the spell of the dust of the broken hearts. <laughs> the scene is a little cheesy, but I like it. Again, I don't know, it's the charm of Val Kilmer. At this point in the film, Mad Mardigan and Willow have been captured, and they're in the cage, and it's in the snow, and the brownies are there, and they're there to help pick the lock to their cage. And in the meantime, Finn Razel, who is the good sorceress, is with them, but she's in the form of a possum. And in order to escape this cage, before we realize that the brownies are there to pick the lock, Willow attempts to use the magic because he has the... There's a lot going on here. He's got the wand from the queen fairy from the forest, who is Sherlindria. He has her wand, whom he's he's supposed to give this wand to Finn Rizel. However, Finn Rizel is in the form of a possum. So... Willow, using the wand, is supposed to turn Finn Rizel back to her human form, and he makes an attempt, he fails, and instead turns her from possum to black crow. So that happens while they're in the cage. Meanwhile, the brownies are trying to pick the lock. Mad Mardigan says, no, let me do it. And the brownies get mad at him, and one of them smacks him on the nose with their pouch, which happens to be full of the dust of the broken hearts, which is basically a spell that makes you fall in love with someone you're most likely already attracted to, or maybe it's the first person you see. I, I don't think it's the first person you see. Otherwise, he'd fall in love with Willow. Regardless, they need to now get out of the cage, which they do. They pick the lock, and so they get out of the cage, and Mad Mardigan is a little loosey-goosey under this spell, and they go to the tent where they know that the child, Laura Donnan, is uh, being kept, and she's being kept under watch the watchful eye of Sorsha, the daughter of the evil Queen Bevmorda. But she is currently asleep in her tent, and the baby is resting in the corner. Mad Mardigan goes in, and of course, when he lies his eyes upon her, he is in love because he's under the spell. And so he starts whispering sweet nothings to her. He says things like, wake from this hateful sleep. It deprives me of your beauty, beauty of your eyes. And we know that like at this point in the story, they're mortal enemies. She's still asleep, then wakes up and puts a knife to his nether regions and says, one move, jackass, and you really will be a woman. And he just continues to spout these romantic lines like, you are my sun, my moon, my starlit sky. Without you, I dwell in darkness. I love you. Your powers enchanted me. I stand helpless against it, et cetera, et cetera. I can't stop the beating of my heart. It beats like never before. And she says, I can stop it. I'll kill you. And he says, love makes death a trivial thing. Your touch is worth a hundred thousand deaths. It's fun watching Kilmer do his things because he's over the top. He's, it's a bit, it, the lines are cheesy. He's being cheesy. And somehow he's seducing Sorsha in the scene. And I don't know how she's falling for it because she's got her knife to his throat, but she is enchanted by him. And eventually she realizes that Willow has taken the baby and calls for General Kale to come and capture them all. And basically Mad Mardigan and Willow run off into the snow and end up hopping on a shield that serves as a sled. And this is kind of a fun sequence because we get to see them cruise down the snowy mountainside and they are hauling 
ass. And what I like about this part of the sequence is that during their escape down the side of the mountain, sliding down the mountain, you can tell that a lot of it is practical effects. There's a camera either mounted in front of both Val Kilmer and Warwick Davis as they're you know sliding down on this shield. And you can tell... <laughs> And it's in the trivia as well, or in the research, that Warwick is a little, little scared because they're going at high speeds. And there isn't a lot of special effects or projection screen stuff going on behind them. It's actually them sliding down the mountain. So it's kind of a fun scene. And I thought I'd throw it in there. Yeah, I certainly like the sledding part. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, but that's I think exciting. The your question about Sorsha is she is an attractive woman, but I think most guys are intimidated to talk to her, approach her. And now here's a guy that talks her up, tells her she wants to hear that she's beautiful. Mm. I think she's just happy someone uh, sees her for who she is. You know, someone brave enough to really just walk up to her and tell her how he feels. What's your next uh, scene or moment? For my next scene, I'm going to do a little Star Wars pun here. It's Attack of the Trolls. Yes. So Willow's mission is to take the baby to this castle or this realm called Ter Asleen. Ter Asleen, yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you know all this. Even though I have all these notes in front of me, I still have no idea where they come up with these goddamn names. And they'll help protect the baby, and there'll hopefully be an army there. They can use the army to attack the queen and get rid of this evil. But unfortunately, when they get to the castle, it has been cursed. All the people that are in the castle, the king and warriors and all that. It seems like they're frozen alive from what I gather. I think some of it was more from the research, but I don't think they really show that in the movie. But supposedly they're still alive and they're encased in crystals or ice. Yeah, I thought that looked pretty cool, actually. They do look... Yeah, it did. That they had been preserved in their original form. Like they don't look aged or... I mean, they literally are just frozen in like these crystal ice blocks. So all hope seems to be lost. The evil queen has sent her army after them, and they're right behind Willow and Mad Mardigan, and they're not sure what to do. And Mad Mardigan discovers, unfortunately, by stepping in some doo-doo, where have we seen this before in a George Lucas movie, <laughs> that there's trolls in the castle. And I think what I liked about the scene, because as soon as you hear the word trolls, an easy name that some of us can remember. You have an image in your mind of what you think a troll is going to look like, right? Mm -hmm. I think this is one of the coolest things because once you see the trolls in this movie, it totally erases all of that because there's one scene where the army has kind of gotten into the castle and, and Willow's trying to get away with the baby and he's running across this bridge. And then you see like this figure crawling underneath the bridge with him. And at first I thought it was one of the members of the army. I'm like, damn, that guy's agile that he's going to, follow Willow and then maybe surprise him once he gets to the other side of the bridge and what's inside the castle. But it's really one of these trolls. And these trolls almost look like a little bit of the monkey people at the beginning of 2001. Oh, sure. That's a good comp. And they're very agile and they're literally crawling along the walls of the castle and they start attacking Willow because he, he gets to the other side of this bridge and there's a door that he's trying to get through and he's trying to break it down and he, and he has to put the baby down to try to get a weapon to open the door. 
and the trolls start attacking Willow. So Willow's trying to get through the door, fend off these trolls, and protect the baby at the same time. And the first troll, he's able to use his wand because Rizel has taught him a little bit of sorcery. And yeah, he needs some work. But the first one he's able to use his sorcery on, and it changes it into this two-headed beast, which we'll probably talk about later. Uh, the second one... He's able to fight off. And then the third one, Mad Mardigan's got to come in and help save the day. But I just really like the trolls. I like the design of the trolls. I thought it was just something different and unique about them. And, of course, all this other chaos is going on where Val's fighting the Queen's army within the walls of the castle. And poor Willow is trying to take care of another threat at the same time and protect this baby. And it's, man, what else can happen to these guys? They're in deep doo-doo right now. Deep troll doo-doo. Deep doo-doo. I love it. I do like the imagery that this, what I, I like to call this kind of like the Battle of Tira's Lean uh, scene. And it is near the beginning when, like you said, Mad Mardigan steps in the, the troll dung. And when you see those trolls climbing on the, they look like shadows at first. It's really cool yes. imagery. It's like scary black shadows crawling underneath the bridge as Willow's crossing it and then up the walls. And it's very creepy. It's one of the creepier moments in the film. It's very cool imagery. And it is a different take on trolls. And funny enough, it made me actually go on like this tangent online. I, I decided to go on a wild goose chase of trolls. And we know different versions of trolls from obviously the Lord of the Rings uh, stories, Harry Potter, and Troll Hunter. It's oh, a really yeah. cool movie. Some really cool effects in the way they do that. Regardless, cool moment in that scene. I actually have one of my favorite moments is within this scene, the Battle of Tira's Lane, because after Willow had zapped the one troll, the first troll with the wand, as Bill Bant described, the troll turns into like this bloody, veiny, ball, gooey mess, and two little dragon heads pop out of the top of it like double alien heads. And uh, Willow kicks the the ball of gooey double head mess off the bridge and into a puddle below. And the puddle starts bubbling and smoking. And it, all of a sudden, the double-headed gross gooey mess grows into a giant double-headed dragon of sorts. And meanwhile, on the ground, uh, Mad Mardigan is single-handedly fighting the Nakmar soldiers. You know, he's set up the whole area like he's kind of booby-trapped it and he's managed to do some fancy sword play and he's fending them off. And all of a sudden, this double-headed dragon starts growing and rising behind Mad Mardigan. He doesn't see it. But the Nakmar soldiers that he's fighting certainly see the double-headed dragon and they look up and they're freaking out and they retreat right to the entrance of the castle. And then, of course, Mad Mardigan, who's quite full of himself, thinks, well, haha, I've bested them and they are now intimidated and clearly all retreating due to my wonderful prowess as a swordsman. And then he, of course, gets wind of the fact that there's something large and looming behind him. He turns around slowly, and there's the double-headed dragon. And <laughs> Val has got this great open-mouth, jaw-dropped look on his face in this goofy helmet that he's wearing. And it's a great expression. So he hauls ass out of the castle and finds himself standing right amongst all of the Nakmar soldiers, including General Kale, who's this giant commander of the Nakmar armies who wears this really intimidating skull mask, which is one of my favorite masks of all time, actually. I just think it's really intimidating, very cool. And Mad Mardigan's standing amongst them all because they're all now running from a common en enemy. 
But he takes a moment, looks to his left, looks to his right. He's like, oh, shit, I'm just standing amongst all the enemy right now. And they're looking at him like, oh, hey, man, what's up? And then General Kale finally is like, get him! And then he runs back into the castle and then the soldiers have to chase him back in. And then the battle ensues alongside the dragon who's just raining fire down over everything. It's kind of chaotic, but it's a fun moment when Mad Mardigan runs out of the castle and is uh, just hanging out with the bad guys for a second there. Yeah, I agree. It's a pretty cool creature. And uh, yeah, it's a little funny that everyone is so confused and just wants to save their own ass that they don't realize their enemy is standing right there with them. What is it? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yes. Um, So for my last favorite scene, maybe kind of a moment. So after the battle we've just been describing, unfortunately, the baby has been taken and it's been taken back to uh, the Nakmar Castle where it is supposedly going to be killed. Yeah, a ritual sacrifice. Yes. So in this moment, Willow, Mad Mardigan, Rizel, who is now in human form, because Willow has finally figured out how to use the wand and, and change her back to a person. Sorsha, Sorsha has a flip signs, mm-hmm. and she's with the group, and Eric and his army have joined forces, and they're going to go to the castle, and they're going to go try to rescue the baby. And when they get to the castle... Uh, things don't turn out that great because Queen Bathmorda has basically changed everybody into pigs. Yeah. But luckily, Willow does a protection spell, so he's okay. He rescues Rizel, and they change everybody back to their normal selves, unbeknownst to everyone that's in the castle. So now they have to figure out how they're going to get into the castle and save the baby and save the world. And Willow had an idea, and he mentions gophers. And this threw me off, too, because I thought they were literally going to dig a hole into the castle and get in that way. Mm-hmm. So I got fooled. I didn't even remember what had happened here. But they have a plan, and it's the next morning, and it's just Willow and Rizel. It's cool, because now Willow has come full circle. Because here he is, up front and center, about to take on the queen and her army. And they have this plan that we're not sure what's going to happen. They announce that, hey, you guys need to surrender or else we're going to destroy you. And of course, <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Two people. There's no way you're going to stop us. And, you know, Will announces, you know, hey, we're powerful sorcerers. Give up and we'll spare you. And of course, the head of the army is like, just kill those two. Get rid of them. Mm-hmm. So there's a moment. It's like, okay, the plan is about to go into action. Rizel tells Willow that, hey, this is going to be a great moment for you, a great moment that people are going to know about for for ages and something your children will know. And about five or six of the army members, they lower the gate and they come out and here they are. They're going to take on Rizel and Willow. And they're like, okay, all right, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And you see Willow's all tensing up and Rizel just says to him, patience, Willow. Willow just internalized. Well, he doesn't internalize because he externalizes where he just says, courage, Willow. And I like that. Mm-hmm. A couple of days ago, I'm, I'm just planting crops in my village. Now, all of a sudden, I, I have this master plan where all these lives are at stake. Our world's at stake, and this better work. And sure enough, um, when the army gets close enough, there's a drum, and he starts banging on the drum. And what the army did is they dug all these holes and put tarps over them, and they come out of the tarps. And with the gate open, they basically make a rush for the gate. 
while they knock out the army, and now that's how they're going to get in. So I thought that was kind of cool because it even fooled me because I thought for sure they were somehow digging their way into the castle when they were really just digging around the castle and popping up. Agreed. I like that play. Uh, totally agree. Very cool because it does look as if they have retreated and deserted. They've left. It just looks as if the, all the tents are deflated on flat ground, not knowing that there are holes dug beneath them. Even the horses are lying down. Right. Well, they assume they're all pigs at that point, and then the pigs just took off. I don't even think they realized they'd turn back into people. Good point. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't even think about that. And by the way, a shout out to that scene. I actually was impressed watching that scene where Baph Morda is turning all turning everyone outside of Willow and Rizel into pigs because I thought some of the makeup effects and some of the transition, the way they shot some of the transition from human to pig, I thought was pretty well done. They kind of cut around it. You didn't see too much. It wasn't like an American werewolf in London situation. It was just it just kind of cool, some cool makeup effects, especially like on Val Kilmer when his face goes to kind of like a pig face and you see oh, yeah. the snout forming and or the the lower fangs coming up and whatnot. It was kind of cool. Some cool makeup in that sequence. But uh, regardless, hey man, my last favorite scene is also within this scene, the final battle at Castle Nakmar. So thanks for setting me up, man, because once they've pulled off their trick to infiltrate the castle, we know that Mad Mardigan, Sorsha, Eric, and the army go in, and they are going to face off with Kale and his Nakmar soldiers, while Willow joins Rizel and goes up towards the top to intercept Bavmorda in the middle of her ritual to sacrifice the baby Elora Dannon and thus continue her evil reign over the land. So my favorite portion of this entire final sequence actually happens on the ground with the soldiers. And it's just basically between General Kale and Eric and then General Kale and Mad Mardigan. I love the setting here. First of all, I love the design of Castle Nakmar. It is badass. I mean, it is a huge, looming, enormous, grandiose black castle. And I just think the shape of it, the design of it, the architecture is very cool. I love the design of it. So once they're inside, though, now it is raining like cats and dogs. It, the rain's coming down. That adds to a, dram a dramatic element to the scene. Love James Horner's score in this uh, section. There's a lot of James Horner's signature sounds in the score with the trumpets and the strings and the, the way the chords rise and fall. It's fantastic. So it cuts back and forth as like a lot of action sequences will do. There's two action sequences happening concurrently. One is up top in the castle with Bav Morda facing off with Rizel and they're going at it with their magic. Meanwhile, Willow is trying to rescue Alora Dannon, the baby. And then again on the ground, we have the soldiers facing off. And General Kale, played by the great Pat Roach, he's a hulking beast. I mean, the actor himself is, I think, like 6'5", at least. And he wears this wonderful skull mask. So he's extremely intimidating. And he goes up against Eric Thawbear and gets the better of him. And it's kind of brutal. I actually grew fond of Eric in this. He seems to be a good... I guess he's not really a, a partner, but he was a friend at some time. And some I'll get to that later in my complaints, honestly, because I kind of like Eric. I wanted to see more of Eric. He seemed like a good dude, and he's kind of like the general of the good armies. And he he just has a good heart. He seems one of like one of more purely good characters. And he goes up against Kale, and he's just no match. 
and Kale puts a knife in his belly and takes care of him and he goes rolling down the hill. And then Mad Mardigan runs up to the dying Eric and Eric says, uh, win the war for me. I'm paraphrasing, but uh, Mad Mardigan then decides to exact his revenge upon Kale. And it's kind of cool. He grabs, like, Eric has this cool uh, sword that is, um, it has, the hilt has like a covering that encompasses the entire fist and like almost wrist. And that's Eric's weapon. And Mad Mardigan takes it from him and charges Kale and just goes right at him. And Kale gets the upper hand at first and slices that sword in half, but uh, not before, I believe, yeah, before Mad Mardigan actually gets a swipe at his mask and cuts the half of the skull mask off of his face. And you see now Kale is actually uh, wounded and he's bleeding from the face. And you're like, okay, Mad Mardigan might just get the upper hand. Mad Mardigan grabs a sword from that's sticking out of a dead soldier and another knife and goes at Kale and uh, starts getting the better of him. But then when Mad Mardigan looks up, he hears screams from the upper tower where the magic duel is happening. And he knows he's got to get up there to help Willow. And he starts going up the winding staircase and Kale just gives chase, which is kind of interesting now because Mad Mardigan forgets about like he really goes for Willow. He makes a choice, which I think is kind of cool. Instead of trying to defeat the big bad, the general, he goes to save his friend. And then the general has to give chase, has to go after Mad Mardigan. And the scene ends on this bridge. And again, downpouring rain, Kale and Mad Mardigan going at it. This is what we want to see. So at this point, actually, Kale gets the better of Mad Mardigan and he starts choking him out. And Mad Mardigan has at this point already stabbed him in the gut. But Kale's just huge. And it's almost as if he doesn't feel any pain and he's just a monster. But then Mad Mardigan pulls this kind of cool move where he uses his own weight to his advantage. He spins Kale around. Kale's sword is lying on the bridge. And Mad Mardigan steps on the hilt of the sword, which tilts it upward. And then Mad Mardigan, holding on to Kale, falls backwards. And so that Kale's weight kind of comes down onto his own sword upon which he is impaled. And that's how Mad Mardigan gets Kale. It's kind of a cool move. And then he shoves him off the bridge and Kale falls to his death. And it's kind of cool because, well, not just the rain and the mud and all the fighting that's going on around, but it really is James Horner's score. And it's just awesome because with every slash and you hear, like as Kale and Mad Mardigan are having this sword duel and Kale knocks the sword out of Mad Mardigan's hand, you hear the... As it flies backwards, and there's some great sound design. And with every slash of the sword or clink of the swords coming together, or the a stabbing motion, you hear Horner's score just crescendo, and it comes to a great dun 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 dun, and it's just as impactful. I loved it as a 14 year old. Loved that scene. Watched it a million times. Still love it now. My only complaint really is that there should have been more. I would have liked to seen a longer duel between the two of them. But that's my favorite part of that final battle. It's a good way how Mad Mardigan figured out how to kill Kale at the end by basically using his own weapon against him. I love when that kind of stuff happens. Yeah, it's cool. Hey, let's take a short break to hear from our friends over at Watch This Tonight podcast. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. It's about nine o'clock at night. You finished your day. Kids are asleep, had dinner, took the dog for a walk. You got a little bit of time to just chill out and watch something good on TV. And you spend 25 minutes 
going between all the different streaming platforms, Netflix, Paramount+, Plus, Apple+, Plus, Amazon, and you don't know what to watch. And finally, at the end, you give up and you just put on something you watched already. If this has happened to you and you just can never find that good thing to watch when you want to, then I've created a show just for you. It's called Watch This Tonight. I'm Dan Benamore. I've been a film critic, a film producer, and now I'm a podcast producer. And when you're in that moment, when you're staring at your different streaming platforms and you don't know what to watch and you want to make sure you watch something good, just look up Watch This Tonight anywhere you listen to podcasts. Each episode is only about 10 minutes, and each episode gives you a curated selection for the best in streaming. Look for Watch This Tonight anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now back to our show. Okay, time to move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have brownie holes. Yes, and if it does not fall under Swiss Cheese, we just file a complaint with the Complaint Department. All right, so here's, this could be Swiss Cheese. It could be Complaint. Mm -hmm. I'll let you decide. Sure. So the whole point of this movie. So we need to kill a baby. Just kill the damn baby. Why does there have to be a seven-hour ritual to kill the baby? Right. Why do they even have to bring the baby back to the castle? Not that I want to see a dead baby. I don't want them to kill the baby. No, of course not. But why all the pomp and circumstance around the baby? Just find it, kill it, tell the queen, done. I mean, great question. There's just, there's, see, I, I'm glad you actually said you weren't sure if this was a hole or not, because I, I have a whole litany of questions for you that I'll rattle off because there's just a lot of background and backstory missing for me. That's why I said, when you said the movie's underwhelmed or underwhelming, I feel like it is both underwhelming and underdeveloped. Don't have enough information on a lot of these things. So, why, yes, you got to bring the baby to Castle Nakmar and then bring the baby to the altar. And, you know, she makes sure that this altar, which is kind of cool, it's in this open room with an open ceiling so that the elements may enter and it's raining and it's pouring rain on this altar and lightning can strike. And the point is that it's supposed to not just kill the baby, but take the energy or release the curse or the prophecy, whatever it is, we're not sure. But yeah, if we don't know that stuff, then we're left thinking, just kill the baby. Because then if we're going to go through the pomp and circumstance of doing the whole presentation and the whole ritual, then there's got to be more to it than tell us what's more to it. We don't know what that more is. If they just kill the baby, that's not going to work because then another baby with the mark could replace her. Okay. Great. All right. Now I see why you got to do this. I buy that for a dollar. But that is not explained at all. The baby could have literally been killed like 15 times in this movie. Oh, yeah. The longest ritual ever because... They get the baby during the day, and then they decide the army that's outside the castle. We will attack at dawn. The baby could be dead like 15 times by then, but I guess they knew the ritual was going to take that long. Yeah, there's clearly an element of magic here involved, but it, we don't know what that is. Yeah, the prophecy would never come true or whatever, but the magical there's a magical element that just isn't explained. I guess because there's so many other movies where they have to do these rituals and kill someone. They're like, oh, we'll just do a ritual. Everybody's used to a ritual. That's a that's a solid complaint, man. I actually am going to go to the like the beginning of the film with uh, the great Billy Barty playing the high Aldwin, like the high priest of the village of Nelwins. And uh, he does seem like a kind and wise old man with a sense of humor. But is he really a, just a crackpot? That's my question here. It's just kind of a fun complaint because... In the movie, he is looking for an apprentice, part of the festival, and nobody uh, qualifies. 
And later on, after the death dog attack, we find out, you know, he finds out, uh, you know, well, obviously Willow has this Daikini baby and they have to decide what to do with it. So the High Aldwin says, I will consult the bones. One of my favorite parts. And then he looks at it. Oh, yeah. The bones tell me nothing. (laughs) And then when he goes with Willow and his band of merrymen, Bachnar and his soldiers and uh, Burglecut, they're about to leave on their adventure to return the Daikini baby to the Daikinis. And the High Aldwin says, go in the direction the bird is flying. Ed Burglecut goes, uh, he's going back to the village. High Aldwin goes, ignore the bird. Follow the river. It's really funny, but it's like, wait a minute. Is a High Aldwin? What, what's his deal? I just thought it was kind of funny. I'm like, is this guy for real or is he just kind of a, a bullshitter? Is he just a kind of a weak ass magician? But I like him regardless. Yeah, I agree with you, too. I wasn't sure if he really was a sorcerer or not, but he whips up a mean uh, stone acorn. That's true. The acorns do turn things and people into stone. And also, he I mean, he threw like an apple in the air and it turned into a dove or a bird. So that, that yeah. worked. I mean, that was real magic. But here's a real complaint, man. I had talked about one of my favorite scenes, Mad Mardigan's introduction in the crow's cage, right? Well, if Mad Mardigan wanted the water so badly, when he first grabs Willow... Wouldn't he just put Willow in a chokehold and hold him hostage until one of the other Nelwins gave him some water? I thought the same thing. That would have made the scene shorter. Instead, he just lets Willow go and Willow runs back to the other Nelwins and then they don't have to give him shit. Just hold on to him, dude. I am a thousand percent with you on that. I thought the same thing. Just hold on. Yeah, you're a daikini. You're a big guy. I got some other stuff. What else do you got? So, you know, Mad Mardigan's bragging that he's pretty good with a sword and looking for swords in need of a sword. When they get captured the first time and they go to rescue the baby and Mad Mardigan kisses his hands on his sword, hey, he's actually pretty good with it. And they decide to go on the sled and go down the hill and then he just tosses the sword away. Dude, you're going to need that later. Hello? Right. Absolutely. I'm a little baffled with there was some fun sword play in it. But there needed to be a lot more. They don't utilize Mad Mardigan and his abilities enough with the actual dueling, with swordsmanship, if you know what I mean. I agree with that. There's just not enough. There's not enough choreography, like sword choreography, fight choreography with Mad Mardigan and the other soldiers. There just isn't. Mm -hmm. There's some fun moments. Like I like the moments with Kale at the end, and there's moments within the Battle of Tyr as Lean where he sets the booby traps and such, and that's how he defeats some of the soldiers. But he, we needed to see more of his, let's just see how much of a badass he really is. I'm with you. So good call, man, for him to get the sword and then just discard it right after the sled sequence. Yeah, it's like, what are you doing, man? Speaking of action sequences, here's a major complaint for me with this film is the first real action sequence doesn't come until the 49-minute mark. That's a problem. Is that the carriage? Yeah. Basically just Willow screaming, Mad Mardigan. Help us 8,000 times. I, the, um, he, he's annoying in that scene because he keeps telling Mad Mardigan to slow down. There's a child. Oh, yeah. I'm like, uh, you've got Nakmar soldiers chasing you on horseback. Why would you slow down, idiot? I can't slow down. If anything, I need to go faster. Mm-hmm. Hold on to the baby and hold on for dear life. That's my advice, Willow. Willow, have some awareness of what's going on around you. Get your asses out of there. Oh, here's a, here's a complaint. Okay. When you hear... All the time, you know, it's Pat Roach as General Kale or Jean Marsh, who plays Queen Bev Morta. They're always screaming and yelling, going, find the child or find the child. We're running out of time. And I'm going, wait a minute. So there's a time constraint. 
It's just a baby. The baby's not going to hurt you. I mean, she doesn't she have to grow up and become a princess and whatnot in order to defeat you and really fulfill the prophecy? What is baby Elora Dannon going to do? I mean, granted, they need to get to her and, and kill the baby as soon as possible, probably, right? That Why are they in such a rush? Just do it right. There's just another confusing thing. It's just a nitpicky thing I had. All right, so the queen sends out Sorcha and Kale to go find the baby. Why do they need to keep going back to the castle and saying, we have not found the baby? <laughs> I would be like, get the hell out of the castle. I don't want to see you again until you return with a baby. I don't need to know you haven't found it. I can see you haven't found it. Go find the right. baby. You're not finding the baby here. Baby's not here. Go find the goddamn baby. <laughs> Stop coming back. Don't call me until you've found the baby. Yes. That is amazing. Speaking of oh, that sequence of Willow and Mad Mardigan sliding down the snowy mountainside on the slide slash sled slash shield. There is one really bad shot of Willow <laughs> about to crash into the hut. The hut or a cabin or whatnot, where it's clearly a dummy just sitting like really stiff and frozen on the shield. <laughs> Do you know the shot I'm talking about? Did you see it? Yes. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. It's like a dummy with a bad wig on. His back is really stiff and you can see the top of his head kind of shaking. It's really funny. No, because you did touch on this, but I was hoping you could help me out and understand the, the whole love fairy dust. The dust of broken hearts. No. Even this, the name of it is confused. The dust of broken hearts isn't quite clear. You just cracked me up. You know the name of all this. No, I just was because that confused me. I'm like, what is it called again? Because I was writing down my notes and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, it's the dust of broken hearts. Well, why isn't it just called like fairy love dust or something like that? Right. Make it easier. Because dust of broken hearts, then you're like, oh, does this for is this a dust for the broken hearted? Because that's kind of a cool idea. I hope they don't bring the dust back for the show. That's all I got to say. <laughs> or if they do, they better explain it. Damn it. Yes. You'd mentioned the, the great sequence with the trolls and how Willow, first time, you know, zaps that troll with uh, Sherlindria's wand and turns that troll into a gooey mess. Well, why didn't Willow just use the wand on the other trolls? Was my question. Did he lose the wand at some point? Because it worked pretty damn well on the first troll. Then the other two trolls attack him. Mad Mardigan interferes at the end, but still, the wand wand works perfectly fine. Just keep yeah. using the wand, bro. I thought the same thing. I don't know. Like the wand just like all of a sudden he's like, he's like, okay, that's it for today. That was my one use of the wand for today. I'm going to put it in my little satchel. Used up all his wand minutes. Yeah. He's on the one spell plan. <laughs> what else do you got, man? So Willow and Man Marnikin lock themselves in the Terror Sleem castle. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Kale's army is like right up their ass. Right. Why did Kale's army actually need a battering ram to get through that door? Because so they close the front doors and then he puts the piece of wood down. But there's such a space in between the door. Like you could just stick a sword in there and just flip the, the wood right off. It's really flimsy. It looks really flimsy. It's all tattered. Yeah, you're right. And then what I understand is when you first see them go to the castle, there's like an iron gate. Why did you lower the iron gate? That would have been made it harder for them to get in. And then Matt Mar Marnigan goes all home alone by jerry-rigging right. all these devices in about yeah. five minutes. It's like a lot of implausible shit was happening there. Oh, you're absolutely right, man. As soon as he closes the gate, he closes the doors to the front entrance, basically. And throws the 
yeah, one piece of wood across the back there. It just looks so flimsy. And I mean, that was my first thought as soon as he closed the doors. We're like, oh, that's not going to hold very long. No. They could just burst through it with their horses. But I love then when Mad Mardigan goes into the armory and sees all the weapons around. This is before I think Kale actually shows up with his little army. I always, when he goes in there, all I can think of is I just want to see Dutch tilt camera angles and then Mad Mardigan put on the armor and just say, groovy. Yes. Every time. Every time he goes in there. That's all I think of every time I see that scene. Just reminds me of. I know I laugh too because he's all excited because he has all those weapons. I'm like, you're one person. You're not going to be able to use all that. So I'm going to do one more giant complaint. Okay. And I'm going to rattle this off as just a bunch of questions because this is my overall complaint with the film. I said, you know, my issue is under development, lack of overall uh, story development. So here we go. So. Is the idea that Mad Mardigan once fought for Galadorn, but either fell out of favor with Galadorn or fell out of love with being a soldier and or the politics of the time? Or was he a deserter or is he a mercenary, according to some summaries I've read? Where do the Nelwins live in relation to the Daikinis? Are we to assume that they just kind of keep to themselves? It would have been nice to have a better sense of location and place and territory, maybe a map or something like that. What is the history between Rizel and Queen Bavmorda? Are we to assume they were rival sorcerers once upon a time? I think we are, but would have been nice to know a little bit more about their history. I don't know. What was the relationship of Tiraz Lean to Castle Nakmar? And then what place did Galadorn have in the land's history? Does this land even have a name? Does this entire territory have a name? Was Willow simply born with magic ability? Does the power to wield magic randomly appear in different people? What is the real history between Bavmorda and her daughter, Sorsha? What would truly make Sorsha betray her mother? So those are just all a sample of the questions I had watching this. Like, I want to know more about this. I want to know more about that. It's just, a, it's very much on the surface where these things happen. And we are left to assume things and extrapolate histories and the depth and the layers. And it's fine. You know, it's interesting, Bill. I thought about this is what I did a lot as a kid with 80s films is that if I wasn't given the information in the movie, I just imagined it and I would come up with it on my own and it still made it entertaining and I had fun with it regardless because that is the mind of a younger person, of a child that's just kind of instinctual, or at least it was for me in my way of thinking back then. And when you're an adult, we're just more analytical. You want to know the deets and this movie doesn't give you any. Yeah, I agree. You could probably came up with another 15 questions and uh, they all would have been legitimate, unfortunately. Yeah, there really is no background on any of this, any relation to anything, how far the castles are apart, how many kingdoms are there, how big is this queen's reign? Mm-hmm. It's very broad in general. And I mean, Shorty looks like she's in her 80s. So when when would this baby take over? And when, when did she die? Is she immortal or something? So way, 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 way too many questions. Well, that was a strange thing that was happening during the ritual is they did an Emperor Palpatine thing here where oh, yeah. she starts off young and then she gets older as the ritual proceeds and they get further into it. She's Her face becomes lined with wrinkles and such and she's becoming, it's basically Revenge of the Sith kind of thing with Palpatine. Her skin products were betraying her big time. 
Uh, do you have anything else for complaints or Swiss cheese? That, that's it, man. All right, so let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. In this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's That Actor. All right, well, this was a little difficult for me because I was going over, and there weren't, outside of our main cast, there weren't a lot of actors that I was like, oh, it's that guy. Or some of them we'd actually had in previous films. For instance, uh, Tony Cox you had from Spaceballs, I believe. Correct. And so I was like, whom... Would I recognize that would then also fill the requirements of, hey, it's, you know, it's that actor, meaning you won't, you wouldn't know them by name, but because they're not extremely well-known celebrity in pop culture, et cetera. And so I decided to go with Kenny Baker. Uh, oh, okay. He's, yeah. He's uncredited oh. as a Nelwyn band member. He's one of the, the guys playing in the band during the Nelwyn festival yeah. in the beginning. Good old Kenny Baker, because I recognize him. I know who he is, but he's not necessarily a household name. And he does appear in numerous films. Good old Kenny Baker, most well known as the most beloved droid in the entire universe. That's right, folks. R2-D2. Kenny Baker was inside the droid in Star Wars. From 1977. But his career goes back earlier into the 60s. He was in an episode of the TV series The Avengers in 1961. But after that, yes, the Star Wars franchise in 77, Star Wars A New Hope, 80, he does Empire Strikes Back. But he has quite the 80s, man. 1980, he's also in Flash Gordon as a dwarf. He's also in The Elephant Man as a, a plumed dwarf. And then in 81, one of my all-time cult classic favorites, Time Bandits. He plays Fidget. In 1983, he's in Star Wars Return of the Jedi. In 1984, he's in Amadeus. He has the role of a parody commendator. Commendator? I'm saying that wrong. In 1986, he's in Labyrinth, part of the Goblin Corps. In 1987, he's in the uh, he's in Star Tours at Disney. But uh, 88 does Willow. So... Kenny Baker, Mr. Kenny Baker had appeared in three films that were nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, Star Wars, The Elephant Man, and Amadeus, with Amadeus actually winning. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, And unfortunately, R.I.P. Kenny Baker, he died the same year as his Star Wars co-stars, Carrie Fisher and Eric Bowersfeld. And Eric Bowersfeld was the voice of Bib Fortuna and Admiral Akbar. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And they all had passed in 2016. Wow. Kenny Baker was 81. Good call on that one. All right. So for my handset actor, I went with uh, Gavin O'Hearly, who played yeah. Eric. Every time he was on screen, I was trying to remember what I saw him in. But I'm going to start with a little quick bio. Gavin was born in Dublin, Ireland. His father, Dan O'Hearly was an actor we have discussed on this podcast in two different episodes. Robocop, where he played the old man, and The Last Starfighter, where he played Grig. How about that? That's awesome. No idea. So Gavin got his big break into acting by playing the oldest son of the Cunningham family on Happy Days. Gavin was only on the show for half a season before he asked out of the gig. Appearances on other 70s shows such as Marcus Welby, MD, The Six Million Dollar Man, the Bionic Woman and The Amazing Spider-Man followed. 
In the 80s, he acted in a couple of movies, including Never Say Never Again, Death Wish 3, and Space Raiders. But the movie that was eating at me the whole time I was watching this, and then when I finally re remember what he was from about halfway through, Gavin was in Superman 3, where he played Brad, the ex-boyfriend of Clark Kent's Smallville crush, Lana Lang. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yep. <laughs> Gavin unfortunately passed away in 2021 at the age of 70. Great stuff, man. I was so close to choosing him. Were you? I didn't know who else to choose. And I was like, this yeah. guy just has one of those faces. Uh, handsome gentleman. It was a strong actor. I like him in this film. As I mentioned, I liked his character. And I was like, what the hell else has he been in? But I didn't recognize him from anything as you did. And then I looked at his filmography and I saw that he was in a Bond film, Never Say Never Again. I was like, oh, I think Bill might for him so uh but that's obviously not why you chose him but you chose him because of superman 3 wasn't until they were going over the gopher plan that it, i was like oh i got it so it took that long for me to figure out i know this guy that's awesome man yeah with that we'll move on to facts and trivia what are some facts and trivia we can share with our audience it's time to share yeah according to warwick davis this film had the largest ever casting call for little people at the time. Between 225 and 240 actors were hired for the film. That's a lot. So speaking of Warwick Davis, or Warwick Davis, mm -hmm. he was only 17 years old when filming this movie. That's crazy, man. So in preparation for the movie, Warwick had to learn a modified accent, how to take care of a baby, how to ride a horse, how to sword fight, and how to perform magic. It's a lot of things you got to figure out in order to do this movie. And it's so crazy to think, wow, he's 17. He plays a dad in this. Well, that's what I was just going to say is that I actually had a thought when I was watching. I'm like, man, he does seem really young to be a dad. He still looks pretty damn young, but I buy it. I mean, the kid's I did too. super, super young. So I bought it. Pretty awesome. 17, man. Here's a little tidbit. How about Val Kilmer? Well, he was getting out of his crow cage between takes the chain snapped and the cage came down on his foot. His resulting limp is evident during the scene in which Mad Mardigan and Willow arrive opposite Finn Rizal's island. And it is. You can see it. I had read that before watching the movie. And you can see him limping. Like, he's clearly limping. Yeah, I have uh, to go back and watch that. On the island. It's like, oh, yeah. Jason, I might have an answer to one of your questions you had during the Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. So a scene was filmed but cut from the movie, which explains why Sorsha sided with Willow and Mad Marnikin. And it wasn't used just because it was just too long of a storyline. So during the battle of Tira Sleen, Sorsha stumbles upon her father, who has been frozen by Bav Morta. Yeah. And Sorsha's father communicates with her and pleads with Sorsha to renounce the queen and her wicked past and help Willow protect Alora Nadine from the queen. It wasn't out of love. It was out of, well, I guess it was out of love. Love for her father, not her love mm. of Mad Monica. Yeah. See, that makes sense to me. And I had read that as well. And I'm glad you brought it up, man. Um, thank you. Because I'm going to add on. And this is what I discovered. And I was like, okay. Now, this is what I'm talking about. The earlier drafts of the screenplay contained more background information on the characters Mad Mardigan and Sorsha. Mad Mardigan was originally a knight of the Kingdom of Galadorn, the kingdom that General Kale mentions having destroyed to Queen Bevmorda, and that the character Eric 
was the only real friend he had, but Mad Mardigan's recklessness got him into trouble, as did his love affair with an Eastern beauty that tainted the family name. Mad Mardigan had a chance to regain his honor in battle, but he ruined the chance by deserting. This explains some of the bitter antagonism between Mad Mardigan and Eric. Sorsha was originally the daughter of the King of Tiraslin, as you'd mentioned, Bill, who was a good man. He is, in fact, the regal old man seen at the end after the fall of Bavmorda and Tiraslin is restored and can be briefly seen in stone. Oh, that's cool. I did not come across the Mamardican Eric information. Yeah, that's what I I was seeking. Learning stuff on my own podcast. I love when you say that. Did you know John Cusack tested for the role of Mad Mardigan but lost to Val Kilmer? He considers this his biggest disappointment? I don't know if that's true or not. I couldn't see him in the role, but I did read that he did audition for it. They made the right choice. Yeah, I agreed. All right. I'm sure one of us is going to mention this. So there is a nod to Siskel and Ebert in the movie. <laughs> that's literally what I was going to do. Yeah, actually. okay. So, you know, during the battle scene in the film, Willow and his compatriots have to fight the two-headed beast in the castle. And the name of the beast is the Ebersisk, which is a combination of the names of famed film critics, Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel. But here's a little tidbit on top of that. So Ron Howard said that the part of the beast was modeled after his brother, Clint Howard, who usually makes cameos in most of Ron Howard's film. But Ron couldn't find a part from him in this movie. So he made the beast to look a little bit like him. And when I was looking How at the beast, flattering. I, like, I know the beast. I was like, yeah, I see a little bit of Clinton. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. Get old Clint. It's so true, though. Yeah, I never even thought about that. Yeah, he always pops up. And yeah, I was I was looking. I was waiting to see him in this. And then I was like, oh, wow, he's not in this movie. And then when I read that, I was like, OK, that works. Well, uh, I'm going to continue with the theme here. The character of the evil General Kale is named after film critic Pauline Kale, who was notorious for giving scathing reviews to popular and acclaimed films and never given any film George Lucas directed or produced a positive review. In a predictably negative review of this film, Kale admitted to being flattered and amused by the homage. Oh, that's funny. I didn't even pick up on that. That's a good one. This I just found funny. So the six-month-old twins playing Galora Dannon yes. were too young to have a full head of hair. And I kind of noticed that, too. I was like, damn, this baby's got a lot of hair. So the babies were wearing a wig, which was applied using syrup. As normal wig adhesive yeah. would be too harsh for the baby's skin. That makes so much sense. But I, that's the first time I ever heard of something like that. Me too, man. I love it. That's but I would totally bit. see that yeah. working. Yeah. Sure. Because you just wash it out. And it's like, God, that's smart. I just love some of that special effect or makeup stuff. They yeah, come behind up the with. scenes stuff, man. Yeah, that's pretty inventive. I like that. Kind of like a ho- that's like home remedy stuff. Yeah, that hair is cracking me up. Here we go. This is interesting to me. So the box office receipts were less than expected. So Lucas continued Willow's story in books rather than in movie sequels. The three books are collectively known as the Chronicles of the Shadow War. And Lucas shares a writer's credit with famous X-Men writer Chris Claremont. So the three books are Shadow Moon, Shadow Dawn, and Shadow Star, published in 95, 96, and 2000, respectively. These books are generally disliked by fans of the films due to their bleak tone and the quick deaths of certain characters from the film. So Lucas was busy with The Phantom Menace, wasn't able to be quite that involved with the writing process. And admits that he was so unhappy with how the books turned out that he disowned them. All right. So here's my last fact and trivia. Hey, 
can't be a George Lucas movie without a Wilhelm scream. Oh my God. That's hilarious. That literally was going to be my last as well. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no, no, steal. it's great. Please do it. I'm glad you did. This is great. All right. Yeah. So the Wilhelm scream is heard three times throughout the movie. Uh, the first time during the chase scene after the escape from the tavern as the soldier chariot crashes and he is sent flying. Second time is that Tira Sleem when the brownies trigger the large spear shooter that hits several soldiers and three in front of Nachmere Castle as a horseman is cut down by the army of Galadorn three seconds after the brownies emerge from under a helmet. The infamous Wilhelm scream. Right. It's great, man. And it's so identifiable. And for our listeners that aren't aware of what the Wilhelm scream is, you'd know it if you heard it, if you're a fan of film, for sure. Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact re- re- like origination, where it began, or who Wilhelm is in particular, but I think it it's is from a, a Western. Okay. But I don't know. I can't remember the movie. Yeah. But it Sorry. became... No, no, no. I thank you, because that's what I was missing. I didn't know. And sometimes I mistakenly, and I apologize to the audience right now for saying, well, if you want to find out, look it up. And people are like, well, that's why I listen to your podcast, Jackass, is so I don't have to look it up. We will find it for you and put it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, that'd be great. Good idea, Bill. And But the Wilhelm scream is basically become a stock sound effect of person screaming as a result of you know, like an action sequence, like if someone gets, like you hear it in Predator, for instance, when somebody gets blown up and thrown off a building or a bridge or a balcony, and it's like, oh, that's a terrible rendition of it, but it's basically like that. And it's in a thousand movies. It's just a stock sound that you hear that's yeah. reused over and over again. Very distinctive. Yeah. Once you hear it, you'll notice it forever. Yeah, you can't unhear it. No, you cannot. But it's not a bad screen, though. It's a fun screen. Every time you hear it, I'm just like, oh, oh yeah. Hello. And it's a it's very apparent in uh, Raiders, too, right? Raiders of Lost Ark. Oh, yeah. I think that may have been when I first heard it. All right. Moving on to box office. So Willow was released on May 20th, 1988 in 1,024 theaters. On an estimated budget of $35 million, it grossed $57.3 million domestically. It debuted number one at the box office, but dropped to number three the following week after the debuts of Crocodile Dundee 2 and Rambo 3. Willow would stay in the top 10 for another five weeks and ended up being the 14th highest grossing movie domestically here in the United States. Moving on to reviews. When growing up in the late 80s, we would tune in weekly to watch Siskel and Ebert at the movies to hear their latest reviews of upcoming releases. Their review of Willow was unanimous. Two thumbs down. Roger found the movie to be an uninspired, overlong adventure, while Gene thought the movie was tedious with no clear vision and breaking no new ground with its story. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 52%, but it has an IMDb rating of 7.2, which is pretty good. I noticed that, yeah. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Willow? Well, you know, this is kind of uh, piggybacking off of Siskel and Ebert's reviews, as well as your initial thoughts, Bill Bant, because it's unfortunate that now... (laughs) We have the Lord of the Rings trilogy to watch, 
and many other films such as it fantasy wonderful wonderful fantasy films and that are so rich in mythology and lore and you know go back to willow and watch and you're like oh yeah this is a very basic telling of that timeless fantasy story fantasy adventure story it's a very kind of rudimentary and derivative version of classic tales that we're aware of so that was, you know, just a thought of mine is that if The Lord of the Rings hadn't been made into these exquisite films by Peter Jackson, then we might be a little more forgiving <laughs> of Willow, you know what I mean? Or like oh, Harry yeah. Potter or wonderful fantasy, any wonderful fantasy adventure films that have come out since. We'd be like, oh, well, Willow's not that bad. But then you, you, you just be like, oh, yeah, Lord of the Rings now. So that was a thought. But uh, I have to go to, yeah, speaking of, you know, the best fantasy films of the 80s, man. Just going to throw some out there. Some of them we've covered on this very podcast. Some of them hope we will be doing in the future for sure. We've got Clash of the Titans, Dragon Slayer, Highlander, Empire Strikes Back, The Last Starfighter, Krull, Dune, Labyrinth, Legend, Conan the Barbarian, The Dark Crystal, The Secret of Nim. The list goes on and on. There's a lot of 80s fantasy films yeah is there anything out there that jumps out to you that you're like yeah that tops for me is regarding fantasy film from the 1980s i think there's one man i used to watch a ton during the 80s and it's what i'm looking forward to do a future podcast on and i think it kind of falls under that fantasy realm is the Beastmaster? oh there you go sure not that i'm saying it's the best out of what you mentioned on the list but it was one that man I love that one. And anytime that was on HBO, which I think was like we joked last. Well, I joked last week that Mr. Mom was on every other month. Beastmaster mm-hmm. was on every other week. And I must have watched it every freaking time. I love that one. That for me is probably one of my favorite fantasy films. Great call, man. I love when it. I was a kid. Yeah. And then when you grow up, then it's more maybe Conan the Barbarian and stuff like that. But Beastmaster would be for me. Yeah, as you well know, mine has to be Star Wars Episode Five: The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, of course. It's a no-brainer. That's my movie. And it's not mine. It's George Lucas's movie. But mm-hmm. yeah, so that's an easy choice for me. Close second might be... I'm, I'm still a sucker for The Last Starfighter. Although, man, I have such a... I have such a nostalgic attachment to Clash of the Titans, too. I'm glad we did that already. That's great. And speaking of the Dark Crystal, have you? I need. To, I haven't watched that in forever, and I know there was a highly acclaimed series recently too that was supposed to be excellent that I still haven't watched. Anyway, just sparks my curiosity once again. Did you have some uh, initial, initial or additional thoughts? I should say. Yes. Um, maybe you can help me out with this since you've watched this way more than I have. Okay. So why was Burgle cut? out to make willow's life so miserable did i miss something why was there always so tension between those two because there's a scene in the beginning when i don't know burgle cut is putting down willow about the planning stuff and willow goes burgle cut i'm gonna and then burgle cut comes back with you're gonna what and then he starts laughing at him and it's like someday burgle cut someday so it's like someday for what 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 is going on with you two i wanted to know for some reason, Burgle Cut does not like Willow. I missed that in my the the unanswered questions that I had posed in my complaints. Oh, okay. Because it's under no, you're absolutely right. There's I can't answer the question. It right off from the bat the bat. It, I mean, it's right in the opening. Burgle Cut is coming after Willow, being accusatory of him either stealing plant seeds or something along those lines. And it's like, why cop in the attitude? You know, why are you coming at me, bro? But Burgle Cut's a jerk from the get, and there's no we don't ever really find out why no 
Because I really thought they were setting it up. Because like I said, I didn't remember much from this movie. That Willow and his family were kind of an outcast of the village for some reason. And I right. thought this was just one of the, you know, here's another villager that's picking on Willow. Silly Willow, who's trying to plant crops and be a sorcerer. Everyone else he seemed to get along with. So I was like, all right, what's what's the burgle cut angle? Did you get your lady? Mm-hmm. But wouldn't that have been more interesting? Wouldn't that have been a nice added layer if that was the issue? If they're, let's say, a little bit more of outcasts, the Ufgood family, Willow and Kaya and their children, because of Willow's pursuit of sorcery, because he thinks he's gifted somehow, but really hasn't proven himself, and everybody else thinks he's a quack. They think he's a crackpot, like I thought maybe the High Aldwin was. But um, that would be kind of cool. And then that's just one more thing where... We would think, well, Willow feels as though he has a higher calling and then actually gets the call to adventure. So you have multiple layers, right? It's just all part of it, which is actually there in this movie, just underdeveloped. So then and what I would have liked to have seen then is for him to come home as the hero, you know, maybe not necessarily get his revenge against Burglecut, but at this point, Burglecut's kind of, he's just a dick, you know, and it's like, well... It'd be nice to see Burgle Cut get some comeuppance. Yeah, get knocked down a peg or two. Besides getting thrown go. up on by the baby. All right, so here's here's my general question for you. So favorite 80s Ron Howard movie? And this yeah. is theatrical movie. We're not doing TV movies. So we got Night Shift, which we've covered on our podcast already. Splash, which we've already covered on our podcast. Right. Cocoon, Gung Ho, Willow, which we've now covered on our podcast. And Parenthood. So Ooh, what is yeah. your favorite of the Ron Howard 80s films. Run through them really quickly again. Night Shift, Splash, Cocoon, Gung-Ho, Willow, Parenthood. Uh, Splash for me. I like Parenthood a lot. I haven't seen that in forever either. But um, I'm going to go with Splash. Okay. That's just a really good feel-good movie for me. I love yeah. When we did that, I was just like, man, this is so easy. And it's just really, it's funny. It's just mm-hmm. funny. John Candy, Eugene Levy, and Hanks is, you know. It is Hanks. And she's, I mean, beautiful in it, too. I mean... Uh, yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to revisiting Cocoon and Parenthood, because I haven't seen... Cocoon I used to watch a lot as a kid. Parenthood I, I did too. a long time. Yeah, That was a soundtrack I was a big fan of, actually. Mm-hmm. But we might have to take season three off of Ron Howard movies. It's crazy, right? Yeah. It is fun. It's, it's fun to look back on what we've uh, done already on this very podcast, Bill Band, because I was thinking the same thing when I was like... Oh, have we done a Val Kilmer movie yet? Oh, uh, yeah, duh. Real genius. Mm-hmm. You know? And I'm like, oh, have we done a Ron Howard movie yet? Have we done uh, this oh, or know. that movie yet? I'm like, oh, yeah, no, we've done this, that, and the other thing. Oh, cool. All right. We're getting we're getting some good coverage. Yeah. Uh, anything else for additional thoughts and questions? My final additional thought is that I am looking forward to Willow, the Disney Plus series. I know we've said that already, but it looks fun. I like the trailers thus far. I think it's most likely going to be family friendly for the most part still not sure about those damn brownies although they're bringing back kevin pollack so that's cool oh okay i didn't see that it's in the latest trailer yeah okay so check out the newest trailer uh what's the other gentleman's name you knew rick overton is that right yeah i don't mm-hmm. know if it's him is the other brownie i couldn't tell oh, okay. but i could see, i could make up kevin pollack right away not to mention we got warwick davis again back in the titular role great to see him and uh, it's created by Jonathan Kasdan, son of Lawrence Kasdan. Yep. Three episodes have music by James Newton Howard. Hey, wow. I'm in. I'm in. Okay. I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah. Eight, yeah. eight uh, episode run. Even after watching this, I still want to see the series. God knows when I'll get to it, but I will try to <laughs> check it out. All right. So it's time for us to get to our ratings. And uh, this might be the one time going in. We might be a big difference. So on a scale of one to five brownies, what do you give Willow? I'm giving it three brownies. Uh, this is one of those films that I wanted it to be great. And it was only good at best. And as a 14-year-old, I simply bought into the idea of it. I romanticized it. And uh, watching it now, it's still not great. But for me, it's worth uh, Val Kilmer's performance. It's a great soundtrack. I really recommend it. I was listening to it today, Bill Bant, and it just took me back. It took me away. It, but it is really a, a great score. And the movie does have some great technical aspects to it. As you, I mean, it was nominated for some Oscars, great sound design. And like I said, looking forward to the series coming out uh, and just really hoping they further develop the story. Yeah, I can only give it three brownies and I'm being probably about a 0.5 brownie or half brownie generous because of my nostalgic attachment. And I'll admit to that. So how many brownies are you, uh, are you baking for this, this baby? All right. We were closer than I thought. I gave it two and a half. Too many questions. It's a little too long, but it is a family film that's something you can actually watch. You know, especially if you're going to try the the show, give it a watch. It's okay. It's it's just an okay movie. That's it. That's yeah. that's bottom line. It's an okay movie. Fair enough. All right. So I think about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review, and rate us. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please give us your feedback, questions, or movies you want us to cover, and of course, recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook, Meta, at All 80s Movies Podcast. Catch us on TikTok at All 80s Movies Podcast. Or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Next week, we'll be discussing the high school comedy classic, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, starring Matthew Roderick, Mia Sarah, and Alan Ruck. Oh, yeah. Have a totally great week, everyone. It was just my old disappearing pig trick. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Sorry, got some neighbors that like smoking up around this time. All right. Smoke them if you got them.